You are listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we begin our study on the identity, practices, and purpose of the church with a series we are calling The Church. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. So we've been on a journey this year. If you've been with us, we have had a plan. It's fun to me when somebody says, so there's like a rhythm or an order to what you guys do when you plan this stuff. And it's like, yeah, exactly. We hope that there is. So if you go back with us to where we've been since the beginning of the year, we started in our study of 2 Timothy with Paul encouraging Timothy to make some resolutions, to be resolved to some things in his life that would set or hallmark what his life was going to be about. We came out of that and we were preparing for Easter. And so we talked about what does it look like to prepare for the king? And so we went through, we talked about that, and we talked about the king. And if he's who he says that he is, that led into our next series, which was could we be transformed that we would uh, walk with Christ in such a significant way that in the end all those seven characteristics would culminate that we would reflect Jesus to a world that desperately needs to see Jesus. We got to the end of that and we talked about, does it matter? Well, of course it matters. And we talked about what the prophet Malachi said. Is the Lord cares about how we approach him, about how we approach others, how we engage in this world. Because there is a point in time coming where judgment will occur. So we talked through what that was going to look like. And that led us into our next study, which is what we just wrapped up last week. Defining the times that come ahead. And we talked about judgments and God's plans and how ultimately life will bring us back to the garden where it began. So the question for you and me is this, how do we walk in this world? Well, that's what brings us to our next study. We're going to start our study this morning. Uh, Over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about the church, who the church is, God's design for the church. And so these are the lessons that we're going to be looking at as we move through this time. What's the identity of the church? What, is her, what are her ordinances, her calling, her leadership? What does it look like for us to worship? And then we're going to personalize all of that in the life of Grace Church so that you can see in our attempt to connect some dots. Why are the female pronouns there? Well, the church is called the bride of Christ. And so when we talk about the church, we apply female pronouns. And so that's where we're headed in this series that we're going to begin. Back in the spring, our shepherding team had a chance to go down to Dallas for a conference. And we were at Watermark Church uh, down there. And one of the things that they showed us as we talked about uh, the church and our calling as church leaders was this video that they provided. And I'm going to share it with you. It's a, it's a little bit longer video. I'm starting to explain it to you because if you're here with us, we typically begin and transition with a video that's about 45 to 60 seconds long. This one's eight minutes. And so if you look at it and think, Good grief, are we going to begin every sermon in this series with this eight-minute video? No. But there's going to be some things in this as we look at the history of the church, what God has done in the church, as we're going to talk about her identity, it felt like this would be a helpful thing for us to encourage you to see God's handiwork through the history of the church from the inception till present day. So I invite you to watch. It started in darkness. When all hope seemed lost, and many had deserted their Savior. When everyone had lost faith in His promises. Jesus Christ 
savior of the world, God made man, is risen from the dead. Mary Magdalene and other women discover an empty tomb and report the news with great joy. 50 days later, the Holy Spirit spreads among the disciples. Commoners and leaders alike unite behind our risen King. The church, the body of Christ begins to grow. Believers face persecution on every front, but Christ's conversion of one man, the Apostle Paul, from menace to missionary, emboldens others to defy the Roman world, not with sword, but with their love of Christ and one another. Among the greatest threats to the flame of the early church is a fire that destroys Rome in 70 AD. Nero blames Christians who are tortured and put to death in mass. The fury of opposition continues for the next 300 years, yet the church of Jesus Christ thrives defending its creed against heresies and caring for the sick and dying during plagues that ravaged the Roman Empire. The cloud of persecution lifts from 300 to 451 AD, and the church's focus shifts from survival to doctrine. In 325, the Nicene Creed declares the truths that we believe in. One God, creator of all things. One Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light. The gospel moves everywhere, from Scotland to China and Germany to Russia, but the light, once in jeopardy from external forces, is now threatened from within. Infighting and theological rifts persist for the next 400 years. Despite the turmoil, monasteries and religious institutions are established. Christ's message prevails. Believing that all Christians should have access to God's word, John Wycliffe begins work on the first handwritten Bible in English. The manuscripts face bitter opposition, but the spread of God's word only accelerates. In the mid 1400s, the printing press is invented by Johannes Gutenberg. The very first book ever published is the Bible. A century later, Martin Luther nails 95 theses of contention to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Under threat of excommunication and death, Martin Luther refuses to recant. The ideas he championed, the priesthood of the saints, the Bible as our central religious authority, and salvation by faith in Christ alone, these set the Protestant Reformation in motion. Next, the gospel bears fruit throughout Central and South America. In North America, the Puritans arrive and churches grow along with the 13 colonies. But as in Europe, corruption threatens the heart of the American church. In 1730, the words of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards confront a complacent church, ushering in the Great Awakening in pulpits throughout the American colonies. Throughout the 17 and 1800s, the modern missions movement takes hold and the gospel spreads throughout Africa, Asia, Australia, and the Americas. As the dawn of the 20th century breaks, D.L. Moody and others set the goal of the evangelization of the world in this generation. Wycliffe Bible translators labor to bring the Bible to every language group of the world. Amidst the atrocities of the Holocaust, Christ is exalted through the testimony of believers like Corrie ten Boom and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
Later, a young evangelist, Billy Graham, proclaims the gospel to hundreds of thousands of people over an eight-week period. He goes on to share the hope of Christ with 215 million people worldwide. In the heart of the American South, a gospel preacher named Martin Luther King Jr. leads a movement of nonviolent resistance against racial segregation and discrimination. He reflects Christ by loving his neighbors, loving his enemies, praying for those who persecute him, turning the other cheek, and putting away the sword. His impact is still being felt today. We see these revivals, reforms, and resurgences of faith in the larger context of history. The gospel of Jesus Christ prevails through broken people, fully surrendered to God. The testimonies of those who have gone before us are dots on a timeline leading to this very moment. As our forebears of church history acted out in faith, did they know the impact they would have? Did Martin Luther know the reform that the 95 Thesis would ultimately bring? Did Moody, Gutenberg, or Wycliffe see the generations who reap the benefit of their toil? No. They simply embraced the gospel and God's call to reflect his image. Never knowing the extent of the legacy they were leaving, they couldn't understand that hundreds of years later, their obedience would make history and inspire millions to follow their example. Now is our moment to shine the light of Christ, to proclaim the resurrection, endure persecution, love our neighbors, defend the truth, care for the sick, reflect the beauty of diversity and unity among God's image bearers, confront complacency in our churches, carry the gospel to unreached people, and leave a legacy for future generations. Yet as we strive to make our mark on the timeline of history, the forces of darkness remain at odds with the light. Controversies and clashes with culture threaten the health of today's church. Division and criticism within the church erode our unity and diminish our testimony of love. Shrinking congregations and growing opposition introduce many challenges. Discouragement, anxiety, depression, weariness, compromise, isolation, cynicism, despair. Therefore, we must stand firm on the foundation of God's word. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And we all with unveiled faces, reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being transformed by the Holy Spirit into his image from one degree of glory to another. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But if we abide in his love, we will bear much fruit. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You know, I've watched that video probably six or eight times this week. And I met with several ideas um, 
of in spite of ourselves, not just this generation, every generation of church history, we have had churches, we've had believers who maybe had the right heart moving forward, but they've made terrible decisions. I talk to people these days, I'm sure you do too, maybe it's you who have been wounded by the church, that you look around and you say, I've had terrible experiences with the church. And then there's some of us that can look around and say, you know what, I've had good experiences with the church. You know, wherever you are on that, we recognize this, is that when God launched the church, is there was no plan B for this world, there was just the church. And we're called the bride of Christ, and as one author had said, we've got a wedding dress that is tattered and torn and stained, and yet God continues to move us forward to that day when we will stand before him and give an account. And there's all kind of confusion about what the church is and what the church isn't, and hopefully over the next several weeks, we're going to be real clear on what it is. And we're going to start that journey today, but recognizing this, the church is, there's a lot of things it's not. I've used the illustration of a cruise ship before. We're not a cruise ship. This isn't here to serve our purposes while we sit on a deck and have everybody service. That's not the church. We're not a country club. We're not a social club. We're not a secret society. We're not a political machine. We're none of those things. We're the church, which is utterly unique, which is the body of Christ is how the Lord talks about it. So when we come into this place this morning, I want us to talk about the fact that God has sustained us, God has redeemed it, God restores us, God continues to move us forward in light of all the things that have been done in this world, some great. You look around at the missionary movement, you look around at hospitals, you look around at the way that we have served our communities. The church has always been great in those areas, but there have been some terrible things done in the name of the church as well. And yet God continues to move us forward because this is his plan for the world. So let's talk about the church. Where does the idea come from? Is we see this idea, the church is a translation of this Greek word ekklesia. Why would I tell you that? Because it gets used a couple of different ways. One is we've got a formal assembly, we have an informal assembly. When people would come together for the purpose of connecting with each other as they were viewed as the ecclesia. It's funny, Acts uses the word ecclesia to describe Israel in the wilderness. And so it gets associated with the people of God far back in the wilderness but what's unique about this word is the historian Josephus offers us this idea as whether or not it's a regularly summoned body, a legislative body that you would call together a tribunal, that would be an ecclesia. Or it could just be more of an informal thing. It doesn't even have to take on a legislative body. If you just have people that come together for a purpose, it could be informal, but they came together for a purpose. What was unique about that is each of those groups in definition one and definition two is this is the moment they got up from that ever table or chair they were in and they went in different de directions, they quit being the assembly. They quit being the ecclesia because what made them that was that they sat down at a table or in a room together and that was what coordinated them. But there was a third definition that came about. The third definition is this. People with a shared belief, a community, or a congregation. You see, 
If the ecclesia is when you came together and what united you was you were in the room together, you were around the table together, the moment you got up and went your different direction, the ecclesia was over until you get to this definition. All of a sudden, in this definition, what we have is we got together and what united us wasn't the fact that we were in the same room. What united us was a shared belief, a community that existed deeper than geography or a space in a building. It now was the core conviction of your heart and your mind of what drove you, what your passion was, who you were empowered by. So it didn't matter. You could get up and walk away. You were still the ecclesia. Because that which bound you together was something much deeper than a space or a room. So when all of a sudden we see Jesus pick up the word and he comes and he says to Peter, and I tell you, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not not prevail against it. He grabbed this word. There was an understanding of the word. They already knew it. It's when people get together and they come together and they could have this. But this new ecclesia that I'm talking about, Peter, nothing is ever going to disband this. Matter of fact, what you should know, Peter, is this. There's a moment coming when he writes about the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, that idea of hell, Hades, was the fact that, talking about his death, matter of fact, just three verses later, he says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on that third day, be raised. What he's saying is, Peter, I'm going to build this church on the rock. And here's what I need you to know, Peter. The gates of hell, Hades, which was viewed and understood as death. What I need you to understand, Peter, is my death is coming. And that calling that you have together of conviction and congregation and belief that unites you, whether or not you're in the same space or you've separated physically from one another, the conviction is it's nothing will stop my church, not even my death. And my death is coming. But the calling of this body is so unique. It is so utterly distinct from anything else in the world. It doesn't matter if you're in the same room. It doesn't matter if you're around the same table. Matter of fact, nothing's going to stop it, Peter. Not even my death can stop this thing that I'm about to do. And as he begins to move us forward, he wants us to know, even with death imminent, this is moving forward. Nothing's going to stop it. So we pick up some realities. How does the Lord connect to his church? If we're part of this ecclesia, this shared community, conviction, this gathering that we come together to share. How do we relate to the Lord? Well, Paul tells us very clearly. God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus' head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Is The idea is this, is this church, when Jesus says, I will build my church, This is a new entity. This is the body of Christ moving forward. See, it didn't even start getting built until after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, we've got the church moving forward. And how does the church respond to the Lord? We recognize him as the head. We're called the body of Christ. 
is he's the one who directs care. He's the one who leads. He's the one who governs. He's the one who provides. He's the one who sustains. He's the one who protects. And so we move into that with the knowledge is that this authority he has over us is rightfully his. Ushered in through his death and resurrection, he created a new entity, a new calling that we get to live out. And all of a sudden, what we have is the all believers, all believers are a part of this body. Now, when we think about that, I want to call attention to a couple of things. In that video that we just watched, there are some names that you may have heard, names and faces, drawings that we understand to be certain theologians over time. And I would tell you, you may come through that and say, well, I don't really agree with some of what that guy wrote or what that person did. And that's fine. Because what the church has always had is we've always had doctrinal distinctives. That's not, what make, that's not what makes us a church. What makes us the church is what do you do with the person of Jesus Christ? Who is he? Is he who he said he is? And did he do what he said he was going to do? Because when he says, I am going to go on, I'm going to be crucified, and I will rise again on day three, did he do it? So we've got some doctrinal distinctives for who we are as a church. And that video shows people who are brothers and sisters in Christ that are part of the body of Christ, even though they may have some different doctrinal distinctives. Question isn't that. We've got brothers and sisters in Christ meeting all over town today that have doctrinal distinctives, distinctives for who we are. The question is, what do we do with the person of Jesus? Because that's what makes us the church. Lord, you are who you said you are, and I'm saved by faith in grace because of who you are and what you did on the cross. That's what sets us apart because all of a sudden what we see is we've got two different words and we talk about the church. There's the universal church. And when we talk about the universal church, we typically use a capital C for that one, a capital C. Paul writes, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ, okay? So he's setting us up for this idea is that we've got one body. And he goes on in other places to write about the fact, you know, you, the hand can't say the foot, I don't need you. We need a foot, we need a hand. We'd at least like to have a foot and we'd like to have a hand. So they have value, but they're different. And in the body of Christ, that's always been true. We have different gifts. We have different callings. We have different skills. All those things are true. You have gifts I don't have. I may have some gifts you don't have. But when we come together in the body of Christ, we recognize that every member has value. This is every member of all time who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So everybody we saw in that video... Mary Magdalene, carry it through, whether or not we're talking about Corey Tim Boom, whether we're talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whether we're talking about John Calvin, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. It doesn't matter. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're all part of the universal body of believers, the universal capital C church. Paul goes on in that same passage to say, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit is all of a sudden we have a new reality. This body of Christ goes deeper than gender. It goes deeper than lineage. It goes deeper than your social stratus. There is one reality to the body of Christ. 
The bride of Christ is a oneness, a shared value and worth because we all come together at the foot of the cross. It's a completely new entity that started when Jesus said, I will build my church and nothing is going to stop it. This began all those years ago. And we're still leaning into it. And so when we come, we see verses like this, where he says, there's one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, I got to tell you, if you've ever taken a class, one of our Bible studies on Bible study methods, one of the things that we would encourage you to do is look for repetition. If there's repetition, then we ought to take note of it. In a word that God gave us and said, this is all you need. If he says it once, it's important. If he repeats himself, it ought to be really important to us. Now, I'm going to trust. I'm going to help you in case you don't see any repetition. You with me? If you don't see any repetition, let me help you. When we talk about the universal church and we talk about the oneness of, that we have, the unity that we have, so often we can make all of the distinctives in the world and we can say, you're on my team, you're not on my team, you are on my team, you should be on my team, your team's wrong. Now, we can have doctrinal distinctives, but what do we do with the person of Jesus? Because the moment we come to the person of Jesus at the foot of the cross, we all stand there equal, which is why when we look up and we see the word one, there's one body of Christ. And as we gather, we celebrate it. How's the unity? Well, look at the unity that we see. He is overall, he is through all, he's in all, because he's God and Father of all. That's the reality. That's the beauty of the church, which is why have our doctrinal distinctives, but learn how to wrap arms and hold hands with a brother and sister of Christ that you may take some aspect of doctrine differently than another church in town, but go through what they believe about the person of Jesus, and that's what brings together our unity. So how do we celebrate that? How do we lean into that? All of that matters. But there also is the reality of a local church. That's a universal capital C church. The local church is a real thing too. And so the local church is what you're sitting in, an example of one today. If you try to come up with a definition, I've tried to come up with one that I'll offer you. It's a group of intergenerational believers. I have a firm conviction that you cannot have a single generation church is that we have to learn from those saints who, are, who have walked with the Lord for a long period of time. Maybe you're older and you came to faith later in life. That doesn't matter. You're part of the body of Christ. All the way down to when we start talking about caring in the nursery for children. And we pray for the opportunity for them to come to faith and what it will be like for them to be ushered into the body of Christ while we invest in serving in children's ministry. It's why we have a nursery ministry because children matter to the Lord. He had very strong thoughts on how we care for children. So how do we do it? It's intergenerational. It's male and female. God has a plan. Body of Christ, image of God, all of it is there, male and female, 
God put us together for a reason, for purposes. Women have gifts men don't have. Men have some gifts maybe that women don't have. But maybe we just as the body of Christ have gifts and we function in a more healthy way when we serve and come together. Intergenerational, across generation, for us to lock arms and say, tell me what it was like to walk with the Lord through the various eras of time. What was it like? What did you learn? What do we learn as me as a male? What can I learn from a woman who says, let me tell you what I've learned or walked in Christ all these years. Let me tell you what I've seen him do for me. And for me to sit down with a female and say, let me tell you how I've seen God work in my life. Who we gather under Christ's headship because he's the head of the body. Make no mistake, he is the head of this local body. We are committed to that. We live that out. Also under the local leadership team. You're going to hear more about this in in coming weeks. For the purpose of worship. Men and women of every generation coming together under the headship of Jesus Christ, under the local authority of this body, which is the elder body of our church, for the purpose of worship. I offered this definition a couple of series ago. What is worship? And I offered this definition. The believer, the person who's in the body of Christ, the celebratory response, the celebration, it's the response, which means we're not the initiator. Jesus Christ initiated on the cross. We get to respond to who he is and what he did for you and for me. It's our celebratory response for the covenantal fellowship. He's brought us into covenant with him that we may live forever with him and under his provision and his gifts because that fellowship is with the holy and sovereign Lord God. Oh my, of course that evokes celebration. So the local church comes together intergenerationally, male and female, under the headship of Christ, under the elders in this local body for the purpose to worship when we gather together to respond in celebration to the relationship we have with God, and he is the only God. He is the most high God. So let's go back. Intergenerational, male and female, who gather under Christ's headship, under the local leadership team, for the purpose of worship. How do we worship? What's that celebratory response look like? It's through corporate prayer. It's through proclamation of scripture, it's through song, it's through service, it's through fellowship, and it's to observe the ordinance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Where do we get those elements from? Where do we get those elements from? Well, you start seeing them in Acts chapter 2 when the church launches. So these people received the Lord's word and they were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. This community was coming together, and as they celebrated the relationship they had with God, people were like, hey, what's the celebration about? Let me tell you about the most high sovereign God that loves you, sent his son to die on the cross for you that you may have a relationship with him. Let me tell you about him. And then they started celebrating, and they started doing it through all of these ways. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. It transformed their whole life. It wasn't behavioral. It evoked from a sense of worship. 
and it changed their behavior. It wasn't that they got their behaviors in line. No, they got together. They devoted themselves to what the Lord's Word was. They got connected to the body of Christ, and it transformed everything they did. It changed their behaviors, but it wasn't behavioral. And all of a sudden, it changed the world. As we talked about in that video, all of a sudden, stuff started happening. So we worship through teaching. That's one of the ways we worship, proclamation of Scripture and song. I'll start with song. A friend of mine used to always give me this phraseology. He said that our worship music is our portable theology. If we carry it with us everywhere we go, the melody, the lyrics of the song written in such a way, it grabs hold of us, and we carry it with us as our portable theology wherever we go. If I ask some of our older members, tell me songs that you grew up singing, and do you love them? I'm like, yes, give me more of that. Because it got in you, it became your portable theology. Younger folks, give me your favorite song, give me your favorite worship song, whatever is going on. And you come up with that. I love this one. This is when I was at camp. This is where this happened. This is why Blake and our team do such a solid job picking theologically sound lyrics and music. Because we don't want to give you, we do not want to give you portable theology that is made up of great melody and terrible theology. That's why we work really hard to pick songs that will encourage you in your faith. And the proclamation of Scripture, we will always be a church that teaches the Word. And may the Lord close our doors the day we stop. We are going to teach the Word of God. We teach it expositionally. Now, exposit, you know deposit, you go deposit a check, you put something in, exposit, you pull it out. So when we come to this, we frequently do pass, we frequently teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. Sometimes what we do is we go through topics, but we're always going to open the Bible and exposit. We're going to pull out of here and say, you know what, this is the grammar, this is the syntax, this is what it meant when the author wrote it, this is what's going on to the people who he wrote it to. So we're going to try to pull this out. That's why I can sit here and talk to you about ecclesia. It's unique because we are the gathering, we are the body of Christ, whether we're sitting in the same room or not. So we're going to walk, work through that, but we're always going to teach the Scriptures we're going to worship through fellowship. Corporate prayer, where we have our shared reality of our inadequacies and our need. We're going to, if you know the acrostic of prayer, we're going to do adoration. We're going to do confession. We all fall short of the glory of God. We know that. We're going to give thanksgiving. And we're going to ask God to supply our needs. And when we come together in the fellowship of saying, you know what? I'm just as needy as you. And thank the Lord for the cross. We need the cross. We need him and who he is and what he offered. And we go before the Lord and we say, Lord, help us in our grief. Lord, help us celebrate you in this. Lord, we're asking you to show up. We're asking because we recognize that you're God and we're not, and we're dependent upon you. Then we serve one another. If we understand that there's one body made up of many parts and you look up and you say, I'm a hand, but I refuse to use my hand to serve any other part of the body like a foot, then they lose the ability to pick up a hammer. And if they turn around and looked at you and said, well, good luck walking on your hands everywhere you go. It's the communal experience to say, I've got strengths where you may not, and you have strengths where I don't, then let's come together and be a whole healthy functioning body that can serve one another, that we value one another so that we can step into that as part of the body of Christ. We worship through observing the ordinances 
Baptism and the Lord's Supper, you're going to hear more about ordinances next week. But both of them are visuals to the gospel message. Two things that the Lord left the church to do are visuals to the gospel so that we might move forward in a way that would honor him. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we've got this great passage where the Lord is talking and he's offering us some things. I told you that Christ is the head of the church. That's one of the images. We've talked about the, uh, the church is the bride of Christ. That's why we have female pronouns for the church. But there's seven images that the church records to us for how the Lord interacts with the church and how the church is inter- to interact with the Lord. Seven of them. And if you're thinking, are we going to go through all seven of them right now? No. We don't have enough time. But I want to talk about one of them. And it's this one in John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It's as crucial as any of them. So I picked this one for us to look at. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Jesus speaking, I I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, and the branch, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. It'll be done for you by this. My Father is glorified that you may bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The imagery, there's a lot of repetition in there, right? If I were to ask you just at first reading, who's the vine? Jesus. Who's the branch? You and me. Who's the vine dresser? God. Who's at work in this? If I were to ask you how many of us want to go through this life and not bear fruit, I don't think anybody would say, sign me up for that life. The work of the Lord in this, if you look down back at that list, fruit's mentioned eight times in those eight verses. And did you see the progression? Look at verse 2. There's fruit. Then in verse 2, it becomes more fruitful. In verse 5 and 8, much fruit. The vine dresser, God, is at work to not just produce fruit in my life and in your life. He is there to provide fruit, more fruit, much fruit, that we are always growing and producing what the Lord is striving to do. Now, think with me. If you've got a vine and you've got a branch and you disconnect the branch from the vine, then why would we expect this produce any fruit any longer? It can. Now, here's the thing. Is when the branch is connected to the vine, it produces the fruit consistent with the identity of the vine. You could not have a tree, an olive tree, that all of a sudden starts sprouting oranges. Doesn't work that way. And so one way we know if we're abiding is the fruit that we're producing, does it align with the identity of our vine? 
It's what we're doing and how we live. Is it connected to who Jesus Christ is? Because if it doesn't look like him, then it may be fruit, but it probably isn't. It's rotten and it doesn't look like Jesus. The calling for you and for me is that we remain connected. We abide. The word means to dwell with. I'll just live in it. This doesn't mean more works. You recognize that an orange tree does not work to produce an orange? No, it just stays connected. The branch stays connected to the, to the tree. It gets watered. It gets nurtured. And then the most natural thing in the world is it produces an orange. It doesn't work. It doesn't strive. It doesn't stress. It's the most natural thing in the world. If what we hear when we say abide with Christ is I got to load up my agenda with stuff, that's not what the Lord is saying. Abide, dwell with me, live in fellowship with me, connect to my word, connect with me in prayer, connect to the body of Christ, stay connected in the word and in song with our portable theology, stay connected through uh, honoring the ordinances of the church, through baptism and Lord's Supper. I want you to come together. I want you to serve one another. I want you to pray together. I want you to live in community with one another. And when that happens, guess what? It produces fruit. I a hard question here when he says, if we, want to, if we want to produce fruit, we have to abide. That apart from him, we can do nothing. I wonder how many of our lives would say, I believe that theologically, but functionally I live like this, separated. The reality of this world, this grabbed me, this was from last October, so this research isn't even a year old. Spiritual openness in the U.S. I believe in God as a higher power. 77% of our society says that. I would like to grow spiritually, 74. Three out of four people are like, I would like to grow spiritually. But look at that last one. I'm more open to God today than I was before the pandemic. Almost one out of every two people. I'm more open to him now than I was before the pandemic. And we like this whole pandemic thing, and whatever your thoughts are on it, just know this is whatever your thoughts are on the pandemic, God says, I'm going to use that for my purposes because I've always told you that I can work all things together for my good, even a pandemic, and now one out of every two people are more interested in me than before the pandemic. And the question for the church is if we're abiding in Christ, there will be fruit and the world will see it just like they did in Acts 2. And they were coming together, 3,000 people coming to faith because when the body of believers come together to celebrate the goodness of our God and what he's done for it, people are like, let me join the celebration. I think A.W. Tozer offers us something here to help us think when he says, modern Christians hope to save the world by being like it, but it will never work. The church's power over the world springs out of her unlikeness to it, never from her integration into it. Church, we've got a hard question to ask. If our branch is abiding in the vine, we can't look like the world. The only way we look like the world is the moment that that gets severed. And now all of a sudden, those people who are looking around saying, I recognize there's a higher power. I need to know more. I would like to grow spiritually. I recognize that since the pandemic, I don't know what I can trust. I don't know what I fear. I don't know what I think anymore. But what I know is this. 
I can either go to a branch that looks just like the world, or I can go look at that branch that is gathering in celebration that they're connected to the Most High God. That's our calling, church, is that we would lean into this, abide with Christ, yield the kind of fruit that honors Him, because there's a world that needs to see who He is. Our calling, abide. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.